Get Lit. Welcome back to Get Lit, the literary podcast where we talk about amazing works of literature and the authors that wrote them. I am your host, Steph Spars. I'm here with my co-traveler, Captain... Oh, wow. I've been upgraded. John Stricker. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, So John and I are recording a very exciting spot. I gave you that compliment because I'm going to tell an embarrassing story about you right now. Yes. So we're in Provincetown actually sitting on the ruins of the wharf. Uh, where the Provincetown players performed their first plays in 1915-1916. And sitting is a very generous term for what we're doing. We are squatting behind... Crouched crouched behind the highest pillar. But um, we will be doing Eugene O'Neill this week. Um, So I'm really excited. And um, I don't think I realized how meaningful this was going to be to me until we kind of got here and I started thinking about it. Um, Initially, I was just excited, but... um, yeah, I don't know. It's sort of difficult to put into words how excited I am for this. So um, we're really we're really happy to be here. We're in Provincetown. Um, so the funny story that I was about to say is that um, we've traveled here. We flew into Boston and we got a rental car to drive our way out here to go camping um, and do this episode and some more research. And um, John, uh, we got all the way out and John couldn't find the keys to the car but for some reason we were able to drive the car okay the story only makes sense if you understand that it's an electric vehicle so okay. it's like keyless ignition so like somehow we thought the key was hidden somewhere inside of the car so we're like almost pulling out we're like freaking out we're like where's the key the car is driving we're like putting our hands into the seat cushions like maybe it's in the trunk like yeah um and so we were like panicking and this woman at the checkout line was like well here I'll send you back to this guy like he's gonna help so she like hollers she's like Tony like help these people yes and, and we like, look like we look so incapable like idiots and then John takes the keys and out of his pocket throws them into the console and that's that's how we got to Provincetown. There was a lot of turmoil renting the car and I forgot I was actually handed the keys so oversight on my part I'm very sorry Stephanie but we're here. We made it and it's great so um the ocean noises that you can hear in the background were not added in and I'm a little anxious to hear the sound quality of this so folks apologies in advance if this isn't the clearest episode but I think it's going to be 100% worth it um when you hear it Eugene O'Neill. Eugene Gladstone O'Neill was born on October 16, 1888, making him a Libra uh, in New York City. <laughs> very uh, important. Yes, it's very important. Um, he's actually born in a New York City hotel um, right by Times Square. Oh. Um, or, well, Times Square wasn't Times Square then, but it would become Times Square. So, um, he is the youngest of three children. Um, His parents, this is why he was born in a hotel, his father, uh, James O'Neill, was a very, very famous romantic actor, Um, and his mother, Ella Quinlan O'Neill, obviously stayed home, well, in the hotel, and tended to the children. Uh, James O'Neill was really famous for playing the Count of Monte Cristo, like, in the touring production. So, Eugene grew up most of his, like, very young adolescent life in hotel rooms following his father around the country while he performed in this play. And if you guys know anything about um, The Count of Monte Cristo, you know that it's really long and uh, like an epic story. And revenge. It's all about revenge. Yeah. Um, A really calculated revenge plot. So he actually played that. Um, Eugene's brothers... 
uh, James Jr. is born in 1878, and his brother Edmund is born in 1883. Um, so they're actually pretty spaced out in terms of, like, age. Hmm. Um, so that's sort of interesting, but... Yeah, I yeah. wonder why the, the spread. I don't know. Um, you do you, Ella. Yeah. So, unfortunately, Edmund dies at a very young age, and that kind of seeds these deep feelings of guilt in the family, I think, for his parents not being able to take care of him. Um, maybe Eugene didn't have as much, you know, buy-in with that, but it definitely impacted his life growing up. Oh, wow. So he spends the first seven years on tour with his parents, and um, the constant struggling, or the constant travel drove his mother to become addicted to drugs. Oh. Um, so it was, like, a really stressful life. I mean, think of that. Like, you're living out of a hotel room. I can't really imagine that. Yeah. Trying to raise no three young base. children. Right. And moving all the time. Wow. Um, so if any of you have read Long Day's Journey Into Night, you know that this is basically the plot. <laughs> so, and if you haven't, spoiler alert. Um, but you all should. Would highly recommend it. I'm in the middle of it right now. I was very sad it's yesterday very, finishing so the first scene. It's so good. Um, so from the age of 7 to 14, O'Neill goes to different Catholic schools uh, around the area. That explains it. Yep. And uh, <laughs> he rebels actually against... A Catholic education, so his parents send him to boarding school, um, Betts Academy, which is in Connecticut, and he kind of finishes up his education there, um, and then he gets accepted to Princeton, but in 1907, um, he doesn't finish, and he's like, cool, I'm done. <laughs> um, so he develops, this is sad, well, okay, welcome to Eugene O'Neill's life, everything that we're about to say is sad. Um, he becomes kind of an alcoholic after this dropout of school. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He doesn't really know what's happening um, or what he wants to do with his life. So, 1909, he marries um, Kathleen Jenkins. So that's exciting. Um, his marriage... So this is only two years after he's trying to figure out like what's going on in his life. Uh, and so his marriage doesn't... He's, I don't know why he marries her. Like, I don't know that there was much love or, like, whatever. Because right after he gets married, he leaves for Honduras to mine for gold. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, it's just a tack. I love it, you like, forever, sweetheart. I'm going to Honduras to mine for gold. Yes. You're not <laughs> worth... Gold is worth more than you. You're not worth anything. I'll bring us a fabulous fortune. If not, I'll be dead. Great. So, um, he returns in April of 1910. And a month later... Um, his son, Eugene O'Neill Jr., is born. Um, so what does Eugene O'Neill do to celebrate the birth of his son? He leaves later to go work for a year at sea. Um, so he does weird jobs in Buenos Aires, Argentina, etc., um, all over South America. And then he returns to New York in 1911. So shocker. Uh, in 1912, his first marriage breaks up. Well, he was um, never there for most of it. Right. But it just, it wasn't working. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, he, they break up, and he tries to kill himself, actually, but then oh develops goodness. tuberculosis, which, uh, at the time, TB, the consumption, was a very dangerous disease. Um, and he's in the hospital for, like, months. Wow. Recovering. Um, and he gets released from the hospital in June of 1913, and he's like, you know what I need to do now? 
I'm going to become a dramatist. I'm going to go into the theater. Wow. Which is weird because, like, he had no sentimental feelings like that from his father. You know, like, he didn't love it. Yeah, if anything, it sounds like he might have had a resentment towards right. the theater. Um, but he likes to write, so that kind of is what he decides to do. Um, so he makes friends with this guy named John Reed, who uh, is this activist, he's a journalist, and he's the founder of the Communist Party of America. Um, <laughs> so that's a fun, yeah. cool new friend. Yeah, cool new hey, friend. who's your friend? Um, so... He actually, this is documented um, and then dramatized in the movie Reds, featuring oh. Jack Nicholson as Eugene O'Neill, so I would highly recommend it. Um, uh, Eugene actually has a brief affair with John Reed's wife, Louise Bryant, who's oh also gosh. a journalist. But, like, it's a really cool story, and I don't know, it just makes sense. And like John Reed was okay with it. I guess, yeah, I think they were all, like, fine. They were like, okay, this is fine, whatever. Um, and so Eugene's father is like, okay, son, you're trying to get it together. I'm going to help you publish your plays. So in 1914, five of his one-act plays are published um, and generate a little bit of interest. So O'Neill joins um, George Pierce Baker's playwriting class at Harvard in Massachusetts. So he goes up to Massachusetts and he's like, hey, I'm going to do this playwriting class and it's going to be great. Um, so he takes this playwriting course, uh, and then he joins the Provincetown Players. Huh. Enter this war ruin. Oh, I um, see. Yes. Oh, look, and a wave just came in just for that. Wow. Okay. So this is in Cape Cod, obviously, Massachusetts at the very tip. Um, and his show, Bound East for Cardiff, makes him well-known in 1918. Um, so he's working with them, but he writes all of these plays. He works with the group for several summers, um, including when they go back to New York City to do full-year theater. Um, Provincetown was very much a summering community, and I think it still very much is. For sure. Um, so he did all of his work with them and then travels with them back to New York. But they open, um, there's, a, there's a myth that Eugene, kind of aimlessly wandering, shows up to Provincetown um, with a trunk full of plays. And they would do these readings. Um, I think it was, it was Susan Glassbell's house, actually. Um, and Who they, is Susan Glassbell? Well, listen to our episode. That's You'll right. learn more we about it. We did a whole her. episode on her. She's yes. another She's member of the Provincetown Players for a while. And we got to see her house, um, yes. which was very cool. So uh, he shows up and they do these readings in Susan Glassbell's house. And um, her house front part opens out onto the sea. I don't know. Maybe even Jack Reed's. We'll double check this. Um, but whoever's house they were at... Um, they got a chance to read these plays, and by the end of the night, people were totally spellbound by Eugene O'Neill's realistic style, his really intense drama. Um, and Dialogue so they, especially. yes, they invite him to come be a part of their first season. And they open this play right on the wharf. Um, and lots of Eugene O'Neill's plays feature information about the sea um, and life on the sea. He spent, obviously, some years wandering around on it, running away from his wife and marriage and responsibilities. And child. And child. And um, so lots of the plays that he writes have sea-heavy themes and influences. So to imagine sitting on a wharf, watching this play that takes place at sea, and just hearing this. The waves around you. Yeah. That'd be nice. Yeah, so that's really amazing. 
1918 as well, Eugene marries his second wife, Agnes Bolton, who is a fiction writer. And they have a son, Shane, and then a daughter, Una, who we actually talk about in our first episode with J.D. Salinger. So if you want more information about her, feel free to tune in there. Also, just the lyrical-sounding name, Una O'Neill. Right, that's pretty. Um... So he writes a lot of one acts. His early writing is really focused on these sort of tight one act forms, which again are very different than the melodramas that had dominated American theater before this. Most theater at the time in the United States was either touring, it was coming over from England, it was retelling of these sort of like epic myths. And Eugene O'Neill really focuses on this one act style, which again is a lot of what the Provincetown players did. A lot of their folks wrote one acts. Um, I don't know exactly why that is. It could be they're easier to produce. You can feature more people. Take less time to write. I mean, if you're trying to turn over an entire summer, like uh, original summer theater, like, I mean... Yeah, so he writes a lot of those. Um, but then in 1920, he writes his first full length called Beyond the Horizon. And boom, you know what happens when you win your first, or shoot, <laughs> boom. You know what happens when you write your first full length? You win a Pulitzer Prize if Holy you're Eugene crap. O'Neill. Um, and so he wins the Pulitzer. His show goes to Broadway, February 2nd of 1920, and it's fine. So the 1920s... Can, can you talk about how unusual it is for an American dramatist to win the Pulitzer? Very. He's the only one. Yes. No, he's the only one to win the Nobel Prize. Oh, excuse me. Yeah. I'm sorry. You can cut that. Thanks. Bye. All right. <laughs> So the 1920s suck for Eugene. Um, His father, mother, and his other brother all die within a four-year span throughout the 1920s, which is a bummer. And uh, his marriage also falls into trouble. And he falls in love with a woman named Carlotta Monterey. And she is, that's actually her stage name. Um, She is an actress who works kind of with the Provincetown players, but when they're based in New York. They're They're no longer based solely in Provincetown at this point. Um, So his marriage falls apart. He divorces Agnes Bolton in 1929 and then marries his third and final wife, Carlotta. Um, In the 15 years following Beyond the Horizon, he writes 21 different plays. And some of them are really, really successful, like Anna Christie, um, Strange Interlude, which is weird, um, very long. And those also both win Pulitzer Prizes. And then Desire Under the Elms and Morning Becomes Electra, which totally flop and don't do very well. By the way, Morning is spelled M-O-U-R... N-I-N-G. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, So that, he writes all of these different plays, and he focuses on these sort of very realistic themes. Uh, He's interested in kind of Greek retellings, which is Morning Becomes Electra, Um, family drama, religion. Again, his Catholic upbringing, I think, influenced his religion, uh, and the sea. Then in 1929... O'Neill and Monterey moved to the Loire Valley in central France, and they live in the Chateau de Plis in Saint-Antoine-du-Rocher. Um, Bringing out the French stuff. Yes, it's there. So he lives there, and then in the early 1930s, so they're only there for a couple years, and then they return to the United States, and they live in Sea Island, Georgia, um, at a house called Casa Genota. 
And that actually was recently on the market in 2015 for $6.5 million. Oh. So if anybody's interested, it might be on the market at some point in time. You can actually buy it. Um, and Gitlet's always taking Gitlet's donations. Gitlet's always taking donations. You can afford yeah. a $6.5 million house. And we'll, we'll use it as our office. That's and right. It'll be great. It'll be beautiful. It'll be amazing. Um, so he lives there for a couple years. And then in 1937, he moves to Danville, California, and lives there until 1944. Uh, so his house there, the Tau House, today is the Eugene O'Neill National Historic Site. So you can go visit it today, which is really neat. Um, like I mentioned earlier in this episode, we walked by Eugene O'Neill's residence when he lived in Provincetown. And now it's sort of this condo building, like cute, like Cape Cod condo building, right. but it's not a, like private people own it. So we couldn't like walk up to the door and be like, Hello. <laughs> We'd like to speak to Eugene, please. <laughs> Is he in? Is he in? Um, he's also dead. So, um, <laughs> Eugene's relationships with his children, unfortunately, are not that great. So, he has no children with Carlotta, but his kids, he has three kids from his other marriages. Um, Eugene O'Neill Jr. kills himself in 1950. Oh, my gosh. Um, Shane becomes addicted to drugs, and then Una lives a beautiful, wonderful, happy, great life with Charlie Chaplin, but as a result of that relationship, um, Eugene actually cuts her completely out of his life. He's really unhappy with the idea of her marrying someone, literally his age. Um, There's a big age difference between them. Right. I think it was like 20 some years. Yeah, right. So um, O'Neill leaves Shane and Una out of his will actually. Wow. Um, in the late 1930s this is really cool. Um, a cool detail about a career idea. Um, in the late 1930s he thinks of conceiving a cycle of 11 plays that he envisions being performed on 11 consecutive nights tracing the lives of American families from the early 1800s all the way to modern times which I think is amazing um, very much like August Wilson's cycle of plays I think, not obviously alike but kind of this idea of these epic stories that cross lots of generations of people um, and so he writes and outlines several of those plays and drafts them, but he only completes one, um, A Touch of the Poet. And then he develops this illness that's sort of Parkinson's-y like, um, which prevents him from holding a pencil. And that's how he writes his plays. Uh. So they originally suggest like, oh, well, Eugene, why don't you like talk out loud and somebody will write them down? And he just can't work that way. But can you imagine like going from your own genius to not even be able to do the thing that you love most, the thing that's made you successful. That'd be crippling. And trying to say, like, oh, well, John, here, just tell somebody what to do for your drafting or your this, and they'll do it. Oh, you know, yeah. like, that's just, I can't even imagine what that's like. Um, so he works, you know, continues trying to work and that sort of thing throughout these last 10 years, but it's really sort of you know, touch and go. And they eventually move back to New York um, and then to Boston. And so he dies on November 27th, 1953, actually also in a hotel room. And he's Full buried, circle. right? He, the, those are allegedly like his last words, like born in a hotel room and died in a hotel room, you know, like twist of fate. Oh. And he's buried today at the Forest Hill Cemetery in Boston, Jamaica Plain neighborhood, which we got to go see. So that's going to appear on social media, um, the picture of his grave where he's buried with Carlotta. Um, 
A Long Day's Journey Into Night is his autobiographical play that's published posthumously in 1956. And Eugene had very specific instructions that this play was not to be published until after he died. And remember, he's the last remaining family member of his, you know, parents and three brothers to live. So he waited until his family died to kind of reveal and tell this incredibly harrowing, haunting, autobiographical story about their lives. Um, It wins his fourth Pulitzer and a Tony Award. Um, And then O'Neill is the only American playwright to have received the Nobel Prize for Literature. Um, This is in 1936, so I guess going back a little bit, um, after he really comes out with his strong bodies of work. But it's really The Long Day's Journey Into Night that I think is his most iconic work because of how important it was to him. Yeah, it it feels like an intensely personal play for the small part that I've read. Yeah, and then, so again, not published until after he died. Um, Wow which I think is wild. So um, that's the life and introduction of Eugene O'Neill. So he has, there's some really fabulous pictures from his life on Provincetown. Um, He was known to act and perform as well. Um, But the Provincetown theater and in general, not only reshaped American theater, but also kind of defined the idea of this small theater company where everybody kind of puts in the work. So, oh, we need a set design. Like, you're going to do the set. Like, doesn't matter if you've only acted before, like you're going to do this. And they would all step in and help each other. And so Eugene O'Neill would act in some plays. Um, He likely designed and helped out with them, but it was very much a homemade uh, experience. And so to be able to honor his legacy and contributions to the American theater while sitting on the space that he created them is really powerful. I think really cool. Definitely. Yeah. Um, So I think that's about it. We uh, are going to enjoy the rest of our Provincetown time out here. Um, Headed out to see some art and different culture. We'll be going to um, the Pilgrim's Monument this afternoon, which is really neat. And um, they have actually a really cool section specifically about the Provincetown players and Eugene O'Neill. So be sure to take a couple pictures to show you guys that. Um, So feel free. Again, reach out. Let us know how you like, how you don't, and uh, get in touch with us. We are so happy to hear from you and always grateful uh, to have your guys' support. So thank you again for that. It's really, it's amazing and awesome to be able to do what we do. So thank you so much uh, for joining us and for always keeping it lit. All right. Hi, folks. A little bonus content for you here on Get Lit. Um, John and I are standing currently in Walden Pond in Concord, Massachusetts. Um, And we just wanted to share sort of like a mini journal, like audio journal of our experiences. Specifically Um, in Concord. So this morning we drove in and we got a chance to see Thoreau's house, or sorry, Emerson's Emerson's house, house, and we got to see Thoreau, Emerson, Louisa May Alcott, and Nathaniel Hawthorne's graves, which was amazing and kind of a beautiful... In a quiet cemetery. You know, like a gorgeous, actually the most beautiful cemetery I've ever seen. Um, And then we decided, we were like, oh, we'll come out to Walden Pond, it's right here, it'll be so great. And so we got here. And I didn't realize that we'd gone back to the Wisconsin Dells. Which, for those of you in the Chicagoland area, is a family-heavy theme park 
sort of uh, geared towards swimming and kids. So it's like all of a sudden we're trying, we're walking to Walden Pond and Thoreau's like home site, and we see people bringing like Cheetos and like full inflatables. <laughs> inflatable, like I've never seen so many inflatables in my life. Giant coolers, huge boom boxes, like it's, it's like, like a public party beach. central, and I just can't, and I just I don't know. I I'm torn between like. You know when they, like, encourage people to go see, like, historic sites and, like, you know, like, at least they're doing it. Or, like, in theater, you know, we have yeah. this sort of ongoing exploration, like, well, audience members behave differently, but, like, are we just grateful that they're going and experiencing things? Or do we need to, like, teach them audience etiquette? So I'm kind of, like, but torn like right now. But it's here that are, it's, like, a tone-deaf experience. In a, in a way, but people are, like, enjoying yeah, it. Yeah, they are. And like, it's, it's great. It's so just not the Walden that we thought I'm we were just, going to come to. I think we're just in a, in a minor state of shock. So this is just a charming moment in the woods. We wanted to record it just for posterity um, to ensure that future generations will understand and deeply appreciate the impacts of Walden um, and potentially not treat it like White Claw Summer 2019. So enjoy the charming, I see some bluegill from where I'm standing. There's beautiful reeds and grass. It smells like pine. It really is an enchanting area. Um, So please do come and enjoy um, and come enjoy deliberately. So thank you as always for keeping it lit.